Jay Mariotti here, and you are listening to Chad and Ryan on the Friendly Confines Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Friendly Confines. Chad is out this week, so in his place, we have brought Rob Bressler, former voice of the Erie Seawolves, who's going to be joining me on this episode. Rob Thanks so much. I hope you're ready to talk some Cubs baseball. Ryan, I'm always ready. And look, I'm a big fan of the podcast. It is my sincere honor uh, to be co-hosting with you today. And uh, I'm, I'm so excited. Let's get it going. It is exciting to have you, Rob. We got a lot coming up in this episode. We're going to talk about the rotation. Who should be the number five starter? We're going to talk about Jock Peterson and the hot start he's gotten off to and the very cold start that Craig Kimbrell has gotten off to as well. There's some changes at the minor league level that Theo Epstein is going to be overseeing. We'll get into that. Plus, the big breakup in all of Hollywood. We're going to discuss that as well. And part two of our interview with Jay Mariotti. You don't want to miss what he has to say. So get ready, because the Friendly Confines starts right now. Hey, everybody. He's Rob Bressler. I'm Ryan Lieber. Let's start as we always do, Rob, and that is in the first inning. And the Cubs getting some news from the city of Chicago this week as they announced that the attendance will be about 20% at Wrigley Field when the year begins, which roughly accounts to about 8,200 fans that can watch the Cubs. Now, Rob, you are a season ticket holder, or once upon a time were a season ticket holder. First, how do you feel about the capacity that they're allowing into the stadium, and would you feel comfortable attending a game at Wrigley Field with the current rate of fans that they are bringing in. You start. Yeah, right. Thanks. You know, I, I, I think my position is 20,000 or 20% of fans is a heck of a lot better than zero fans. And I think that I, I trust the folks who are making these decisions uh, with the city in the state. And, you know, if it's 8,000 fans better than zero, and I think it's going to give a big boost to this team. You know, Wrigley Field has, has for the most part, been a home field advantage and, and I just, I, I believe that that was really the, obviously the biggest missing link for, for all of the teams around Major League Baseball to not have any fans in the ballpark and to be playing in front of no one. I think whether it's two people or 8,000, it's going to be better than last year. And I think it's a great place to start. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. I think that, listen, to your point, 8,200 fans is better than no fans at all and better than watching the Fox games where we would see the creepy video fans in the stands that really would just be very odd to see. Now, I can't sit here and say that 100% capacity, kind of like what the Texas Rangers are doing, is necessarily the right thing either. But either way, 8,200 fans is a nice start. I think they will obviously make it so it's safe for the people who are coming to the ballpark and hopefully, as the year progresses, for that matter, Rob, then we can start to see more and more people build up. And hopefully, by the time maybe August, September rolls around, so maybe towards the end of the year, and if the Cubs are in contention for that matter, maybe we'll even see more fans. Maybe we're talking fifteen to 20,000 fans by the end of the year. So fingers crossed that it'll work out that way. Well, Rai, we talked about the fans. Let's move on to the second inning now, and we're talking about maybe the biggest acquisition in the offseason for the Cubs, and that's Jock Peterson, jockeying for position. Uh, what are your thoughts on the start of the Cubs' new left fielder this spring? Robbie's the great Jewish hope, right? I mean, this is fantastic. Hitting 579, five home runs, nine RBIs through eight games as of this recording right now. He's the guy who is going to be, you know, filling the gap or filling the role that Kyle Schwarber left for the Washington Nationals. And, you know, I like this. Jack Peterson is going to be hungry this year. He signed that one-year $7 million deal. 
He's clearly going to be looking for a big contract. So this is a big year for him. And he sees this as an opportunity to be able to play every day and prove that he is worth what the Cubs went out and paid him for this bargain salary. Now, I think that he could potentially be a, a really good player. And while spring training, because I said this about Nico Horner, spring training, while it's always great to see, it doesn't necessarily translate into the regular season. It can, but I hope this is something that we can ultimately see, you know, kind of carry over into the regular season. But so far, I absolutely love what I see from Jack Peterson. What about yeah, you? you know, Rye, I, I think people were some people were upset when the Cubs let Kyle Schwarber go. But to get Jack Peterson, you're really not losing that much. We talk it's spring training. You know, we're not going to annoy him the next Mickey Mantle, right, by any means. But it, it's, it's obviously encouraging to see it. I think there are a couple things I look at with Jack Peterson. First off, he had a miserable year last year. 60-game season, you can, you can probably write off a lot of it. And when you look inside the numbers, his batting average on balls in play was only 200. This is a guy whose career batting average on balls in play is somewhere around 240, 250. So the odds are is that that batting average and his offensive abilities are much better than they were last year. And then the other thing I, I, I'm really looking for with Jacques Peterson is the reason he signed with the Cubs is that he wants a chance to play every day. With the Dodgers, he was only playing against right-handed pitchers. And when you look at his splits, this is a guy who's had a lot of home runs in his career, but only nine home runs against left-handed pitchers in his career. And so if the Cubs are true to their word, they're going to at least give him a shot initially to face left-handed pitching. To me, that's the test, right? Will they stick it out with Jock Peterson? Can he be serviceable against left-handed pitching or will David Roths take him out of games and enter, enter into some kind of platoon with Jake Marcinic or someone else similar to what the Dodgers did last year? He absolutely had a terrific postseason last year for the Dodgers. So hopefully this is the start of something big for Jack Peterson, that's for sure. So let's move on to the third inning now, Rob. And, well... <laughs> We go from the very, very good to the very, very bad. As good as Jack Peterson has been playing, we are starting to see once again Craig Kimbrell falling apart. So far in just three games of this recording, he has an ERA over 30. Two in two innings pitched, seven hits, nine earned runs, Rob. Uh, this is the last year of his contract. I thought we were seeing signs of a guy who is starting to kind of regain his form. But so far, it has been miserable to watch him in spring training, Rob. What has been the issue with Craig? You know, here's the thing. I'm not one to usually panic in spring training, right? You hear, especially with pitchers, they're working on things. They're trying to get their, you know, their mechanics sound and set. I'm, I'm feeling shaky, right? I think a lot of Cubs fans are feeling shaky and panicking just because of what we've seen from Kimbrell the last couple of years in a Cubs uniform. Now, look, he finished last year brilliantly. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fantasy baseball guy, and Craig Kimbrell is, is an absolute sleeper this year. Everyone believes he's going to have a rebound season. But when you look at these first three appearances, there are some really distressing trends here, right? It, one, he's walking people, and the command has been a major issue. And two, it, it, at least in some of his appearances, no strikeouts. I mean – he, he's a power pitcher, and his velocity seems to be okay so far. But let's all pray, and I mean pray, that this guy is just working on something, working on mechanics, and that th- this is not anywhere close to the Craig Kimbrell we're going to see. Because I think everyone would agree, if, if Craig Kimbrell cannot get up to at least uh, one of the top half closers in baseball this year, I don't know how the Cubs could be a winning team. I, I think it's difficult to, to envision that. And, um, and let's hope he certainly turns it around. This is not a sign of things to come. I mean, you talk about how he was a sleeper in fantasy leagues. This could easily turn into a nightmare for some of these fantasy owners if he doesn't get it turned around. Look, I, I really don't know what to make of him. I mean, the Cubs, I think, and David Ross, for that matter, have really tried everything to try to shake things up with him. They've put him in scenarios where they're not safe situations so he can just kind of work through it. They've put him in safe situations. They brought him in in the eighth inning. They've brought him in in the seventh inning. 
like nothing seems to be working right now. And and I hope you're right. I hope this is just a situation where he's like trying things out. But if I were him, I wouldn't be trying anything out. I'd be focusing <laughs> on the things that made me successful as a closer in the past 10 years. Because if this is what he's trying to work out, don't do it. Just stick with what you know. And that was hopefully trying to get people out. Because as you said, if he doesn't get things right, you're looking at an albatross of a contract and a guy that you're going to have to hide in the bullpen to try to just use him in certain situations while it taxes the rest of your guys that are in the bullpen. So to your point, I hope the Cubs are able, or rather for that matter, this pitching staff can figure it out. And Tommy Hadovy has a big, big challenge on his hand to try to make that. Yeah. Work. Right. I, I hope he's a lot closer to, to Randy Myers than he is to Mel Rojas when you, when you talk about former Cubs <laughs> closers, but let's, let's move on to the fourth inning, shall we? And I think this is where we talk about the age old debate, right? The designated hitter and should the national league adopt a full-time DH? They had it last year. We, I think a lot of us thought at the very least for this year, they would do it again, but right. It's looking like it's a no go for the NL this year. Yeah, it's a no-go. The Players' Union voted against it, among some other things that they voted down. You know, the expanded playoffs was another thing that they decided against. Um, So, yeah, there will not be a DH in the National League this year. Now, I, for one, Rob, have always kind of been an old-school guy where I've enjoyed the pitchers hitting, the strategy of the National League. It's different from the American League. It kind of changes it up a little bit. I do have to admit, I didn't mind the DH last year when we played in the 60-game season. It didn't bother me. It wasn't an issue. I thought it was kind of a neat little kind of, you know, sort of thing that they added. Um, But at the end of the day, I like it. But here's the thing, Rob. I also think that when it's all said and done, that the DH is going to eventually be in the National League. And it is going to be a thing of the past where pitchers are going to hit. It, it really is something that doesn't really give um, pitchers an opportunity to excel at, right? Because no pitchers are taking batting practice. They barely are swinging the bat. That's why when you see good pitchers that can hit, um, you know, you're sitting there like, wow, this is actually impressive. I mean, John Lester, who at one time was probably one of the worst hitting pitchers, actually became a pretty good hitting pitcher with his time during his uh, his era with the Cubs. But I, I think eventually we will see the DH here for good in the National League. And I ultimately won't hate it, but again, I'm old school. I, I wish we would be able to keep some things in the traditional way, and, and that's the pitcher's hitting. You know, right. What's amazing about John Lester is that he actually became a better hitter than he was at throwing the ball to first base, which which was, was amazing. <laughs> but true. But, you know, I, I, I go back and forth. I'm, I'm an old school guy too, right? I mean, I grew up with National League Baseball watching the strategy, right? The double switching. I mean, like double switching is a treasure. And the, the idea that we would lose double switching uh, at some point in the future just, just gives me heartburn. On the other hand, I'm starting to come around. I think last year was, was fine. And I think the other big part of it to me is it's just – it just I don't like the fact that you have differences between the two leagues. I don't like the fact when you're I'm a numbers guy, when you're comparing numbers, for example, of pitchers in the American League to the National League. In the National League, you've got pitchers who only face eight batters in the American League. They're facing nine batters every night. I just I, I I'm starting to come around. I'll tell you, though, I'm not there yet. And so I, I, I'm, I'm, I think overall pleased that we get at least one more year of pitchers batting. Yeah, I mean, listen, I agree with you on that. It, the one thing that does kind of bother me a little bit, Rob, is we are losing some of the touches that we grew up with. And I don't like to say we're that old, but even the little things that I was accustomed to growing up as a kid, I feel like are starting to go by the wayside when we think about the days that we watched baseball as kids. So let's move on though, Rob, to the fifth inning and talk about rule changes. Speaking of which the minor leagues this year, several minor league uh, levels are going to be making some changes when it comes to the rules that apply. And former Cubs president Theo Epstein is actually overseeing this. 
as he is a consultant with the commissioner's office. Maybe this is kind of a prelude, Rob, to eventually one day Theo becoming the commissioner of baseball. Um, some of the changes, Rob, uh, at all AAA leagues, slightly larger bases with a less slippery surface, all A. It's a requirement for all four infielders to have their cleats within the outer boundary of the infield dirt when a pitch is delivered. So that means that's going to be taking away the shift uh, that we see now so often in baseball. In the all-high A, a requirement that pitchers must step off the rubber to attempt a pickoff. And in all-low A, a limit of two pickoff attempts per plate appearance. So it's not just going to stall the game. Uh, In low A west only, it's going to be a 15-second pitch clock. And in low A southeast only, an automatic ball strike system. So it's going to be robotic umpires. So, Rob, out of all these little sort of gimmicks that they're going to be doing in the minor leagues, is there any that you really like and any that you really dislike as I read these off to you? Yeah, I'll tell you what. I mean, I I think we saw some rule changes last year that worked, some that didn't work. Um, I think out of the ones that you read off, the one I like the, the best is the larger bases and the non-slip bases. Here's why, right? If there's one thing that drives me crazy about the game right now, it's the fact that replay is being used when guys steal second or steal third and they slip off the base for a second and the camera catches it and the fielder leaves the tag on, right? I mean, Javi Baez made a living of getting outs that way, but that's not replay. what replay is for. And so I think, I think if that's the intent, if that's the effect maybe, if it's going to be easier for guys to stick to the base instead of sliding off and getting crushed by this technicality on replay, which, by the way, was not what replay was supposed to be, right? Replay was supposed to be for the obvious mistakes, you know, similar to the NFL. It wasn't supposed to be to, to take out a magnifying glass in every split second and see if there was a hair of space when a guy slipped off the base after already getting there. So I like that rule a lot. I'll tell you the rule that I, I'm just having trouble with. It's, it's eliminating the shift and having guys have to be on the dirt. I, to me, it's like the equivalent of, of the NBA of illegal defense, right? It, it drives me crazy. I don't like illegal defense in the NBA. I've been a zone, a zone defense fan because to me, you have guys, you can position them strategically in the, in the field of play however you want. And it's up to the other team to adjust. Easier said than done. I get it. Easier said than done for Anthony Rizzo to start hitting the ball, you know, over the third base bag. But the point is, you've got nine fielders, right? One is in foul territory. That's the catcher. The other eight fielders are in fair territory. And you can play them wherever you want, except for the pitcher who's throwing the ball. And so I, I don't like this idea. I think the shift, yeah, it's being used a lot. But just because it's been working against hitters doesn't mean you put in this rule, which, which limits the ability of managers and, and teams to use their data to try to position their players in the best place. I don't like it one bit. I don't think it's good for the game. And I think it's the equivalent of a legal defense. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really fair. And, you know, again, we should also mention that obviously these are rules they're trying out in the minor leagues. There's no way to know whether they're True. going to eventually bring these to the majors or not, but it's just to obviously attempt to see how it works out in the minor leagues. I, I, I tend to agree with you on, on what you're saying. For me, uh, I, I, the, the automatic ball and strike system is kind of where I have a little bit of an issue. I, I know people love to get upset with the umpires and love to blame them for strike zones and how inconsistent some of them are. And I get that. But you also have to remember that human error is a part of what baseball is all about. I mean, that is what the game was built on. Like you had an umpire who would call balls and strikes as he sees fit. Not every umpire is going to have the exact same strike zone. Some umps are going to have, you know, strike zones that are much wider. Some are going to have some that are much smaller. And, And it's just based on who you're going with. Players, I don't think, have an issue with different strike zones. They just want to know exactly what the strike zone is. And if you're going to call strikes in a certain area, then you need to call it consistently. And as long as umpires are doing that, whether it's a ball or a strike, then that's fine. Like, if, if an ump's going to call a strike on the outside of the plate, 
and they're going to call that all night, great. Like, then you know as a player or as a pitcher, that's where I need to throw the ball or that's where I need to protect the plate to make sure that I'm not going to get called out on strikes. So I'm not huge on this robotic strike zone because, you know, it just it just deteriorates the game, in my opinion, Rob. And it really doesn't give any sort of credence to lend to say the game is getting better with some of these changes that we're seeing. There's just so much that and, and you know, when we had our conversation with Michael Wilbon from ESPN, he, he even agreed that, you know, the game of baseball is not as um, as great as it once was because of all the changes that we're seeing and how um, the game is played. And I agree with him. I, I think we're seeing an inferior product than we used to see even 10, 15 You know, Rye, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I, I had a chance to umpire one game. It was, I was a substitute umpire for a, a, a young league. I think they were six or seven-year-olds. Um, and I, I loved it. I was calling balls and strikes. I thought I did a great job at the end of the game one of the dads came up to me and said hey nice job only one thing it's it's probably not a good idea to scream at the top of your lungs strike three uh when a six or seven year old <laughs> strikes out but i look i i, I agree with you I, I think it's part of the game my thing is there's got to be more accountability when you get a guy like eric Gregg calling levon hernandez balls you know seven feet outside as strikes there's got to be accountability for umpires like that uh, but 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 I generally agree with you on that point. So speaking of balls and strikes, though, let's let's talk about pitching as we go to the sixth inning. You know, I think one of the biggest question marks for the Cubs this year is the starting rotation. We know some of it. There's a lot of speculation about all of it. The question is, Rye, what is this rotation going to look like? Is it a five man rotation? Is it a six man rotation? If so, who do you think is the fifth starter? Who's the sixth starter? Who's the fourth starter for that matter? What's your take on who should be added to that rotation? Well, we've talked about it before, Rob, where I think, you know, it's pretty set that, you know, in some order, it's going to be Hendricks, Arietta, Mills, Davies, and then that's where the five and six spots start to, you know, wonder who it is that you know that david ross is gonna end up selecting now ross has said that he plans on going with five guys and that he is going to limit um six starters and only use them in very limited situations so with that being said there really isn't a lot of wiggle room for a sixth starter now trevor williams to me once upon a time when he was with pittsburgh he, he looked really good with the Pirates and, you know, now coming over to the Cubs, a team that he grew up rooting for. Um, I think this is Trevor Williams's job to lose. I think he would be the guy that ultimately could pick up that fifth spot. If you're looking at Albert Azalea and Trevor Williams and Shelby Miller, um, you know, and Cole Stewart. Uh, those are, I think the guys that everybody's kind of looking at for that fifth and potentially sixth spot. So if I were David Ross and ultimately he has a good spring, I, I think Trevor Williams is the guy I'm looking at, but Albert Azalea is obviously the one you're keeping an eye on because he's your future and you want to make sure he has every opportunity as well to succeed going into the year too. But that that's where I would probably start. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I look at it a little bit differently. I know that maybe David Ross knows where he's going to start this year, but here's the way I look at the rotation. I think the number one, obviously, Kyle Hendricks. I think the number two, to me, clearly is Kyle Davies. I think he's clearly the second best pitcher. And I, I'm in agreement with you on Trevor Williams. I think Trevor Williams is the third best starting pitcher on the staff. Uh, so when I look at that, I think Trevor Williams clearly has to be in the rotation. And then you look at the rest of the rotation. I mean, some people are higher on Jake Arrieta than I am. I, I think maybe Arrieta can can be a four, maybe. Um, I know he's going to be in the rotation, but I don't have high hopes based on his numbers. And his spring, to me, hasn't looked that good. When you talk about his command and control, we're seeing a lot of the same issues he's had over the last couple of years in Philadelphia. So um, I think Trevor Williams has to be in that rotation. And, and then I think, as you said, Mills probably is there as well. So I guess that's my five. But I know David Ross has said he's going with a five-man rotation, not a six. 
I, I think once we get into this and they start looking at the innings and they start looking at the schedule and the fact that you've got young guys like uh, Azalea uh, who, who just weren't able to pitch that many innings last year, and even some of the veterans who were used to pitch, pitching a lot of innings weren't able to get their innings count up, I, I think it's going to be a six. I think we might even see seven-man rotation by the end of the year. But But if you were to ask me, out of the guys we're talking about, I think Trevor Williams clearly has to be in the rotation. And and I'm so high on him that he's probably I think he's the third best starter on the team, which by the way doesn't doesn't say much about the Cubs rotation. But nonetheless, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think Trevor Williams has to be in that rotation. And now part two of the boys interview with Jay Mariotti. <laughs> Gee, I'm curious. I, I, I'll just throw it out there. I'll, I'm, I'm curious what your answer is. Um, obviously, you wrote a lot of pieces for the Times, a lot of editorials, and there were times that, you know, you you obviously made people upset, but that was what you were trying to do as well, to make people think, to make people obviously get out of their comfort zone. But I'm also curious if there was ever a column that you wrote over your time in Chicago that maybe you look back on and you say, you know, looking back on it, maybe I, I was too harsh or maybe I should have wrote it differently. Was that ever anything that crossed your mind or is that something you have always just felt? No, every story I did, I felt 100 percent good about even as I look back on it today. I don't think you're the first one to ask me. I think Tom Waddle once asked me that. And I, no. Again, I view sports as a multi-billion dollar industry. It's soon going to be a multi-trillion dollar industry at this rate. And I always viewed Chicago sports as such. These are corporations in a major market where fans are so deeply invested in these teams. You should want your columnists to and your talk show hosts to pound away at ownership. Remember, I, I was fortunate. I got to see those six Bulls titles. I also got to see all the dissension involved in that, that period of time. It, it kind of ruined the whole thing as the last dance, I think, so accurately portrayed. It wasn't just the glory and joy of, of six championships. It was all the, the dissension behind the scenes. And it wasn't the easiest thing to cover, although it was, I'm sure, to my dying day, it'll be the, the best story I've ever covered. But, guys, I, I went through years of watching – bad Bears teams and bad Cubs teams and uh, irrelevant White Sox teams and, you know, Blackhawks teams owned by the late Bill Wirtz at the time. And, and I went through periods of time when the, the, the Chicago sports was, was crap and it wasn't easy. It got to be the same old story over and over and over. And I got tired of writing it. Sure. People were tired of reading it, but if you want me to be a good columnist, I'm going to go after your owners if I think they're being cheap, uh, they don't care enough about the fans, and if they're not acting like third market type owners. And, and that's why Reinsdorf and I were always at war, because he wanted to control uh, the media. I wouldn't let him control me. He tried to get me fired every other day. Uh, you know, it, just, it, was, it, it was just the way it was. The Cubs, yeah, it's funny, you know, I didn't. I don't really remember having any problems with the Cubs or the Bears. Or they, it was only the White Sox. And uh, I don't know. I, to answer your question, I don't, I don't regret a thing. I do think, though, <clears throat> that it's, it's a market where a lot of the people in the media are from Chicago. And I wasn't. I grew up in Pittsburgh. I had worked in Denver. I worked in New York. I mean, I came from somewhere else. And that's not the easiest thing. And, you know, I'm not the only one. Skip Bayless came from somewhere else. And I'm sure people look at, who's this Skip Bayless guy? He's not from here. It's tough when you're walking into Chicago and you have written in other towns and you're coming in. It's a parochial city and people expect their people to do the sports writing. And so I had that to overcome as well. It was like, well, who are you? What high school did you go to? Well, I'm not around here. And uh, that, that it's that kind of a place. It's. Where did you go to high school? What side of town are you from? What suburb are you from? And here I come. And it, no, it, it was not easy. And yet I felt you have to be honest with people. And uh, when I arrived in the 90s, my God, you talk about a cornucopia of subject material. It was great. 
was heavenly. Every day there's a national story going on right there in Chicago. Uh, see, now you guys are hitting, other than the White Sox, you're kind of hitting this, you're in the middle of this period where there's not a lot going on, and that should never happen in Chicago, Illinois. Where I live, L.A., there's always some big sports story going on. Same with New York, even though their teams are up and down, mostly down. But what's going on, the blah situation right now in Chicago should never happen. It should never be blah. Too many people care about sports in that town. Appreciate that perspective. And, and you know, we talked about having Mike Wilbon on. Uh, uh, Mark Silverman's a, a big uh, big. Uh, uh, a friend of the show, we've had him on multiple times, but both of them are unapologetic Cubs fans. I pose the question to you. Obviously, you're not from here. I'm not asking you to be a fan of, of, of Chicago sports. Are you a fan of sports? Do you do you enjoy it? Or do you have you lived in? When was the last time you lived and died with a team? What is it like? Because I know you talked before about just the I corporate aspect. You really haven't. I don't think I ever have. I'm a journalist, and I, I don't think in Chicago they want their sports columnist to be a journalist. They'd rather and be a fan. Sovi, and I'm glad he's doing great, and I, I wish him Godspeed. Uh, Sovi and I once did a show together and had huge ratings because total opposites, me and him. Yeah. And, and we're like, we disagree about pizza. We disagree <laughs> about everything. And then one day he'd say, you know, why are you a fan? Just what you said to me. And I'd say, because I'm a journalist. And phew, the ratings. I doubt that station's even had a, a, a show rated that high since then. And, and then, you know, then then it was, it was a fiasco involving Reinsdorf, which is why I didn't wasn't doing the show anymore. Point being that I think if if I'm a you know, media boss in Chicago, I'm looking for somebody like Sovi and I'm looking for somebody like me and I'm pairing them together. Not two guys, Cub fan, Sox fan or, or not. That, no, no, no. You, you need somebody who takes it seriously from a business and consumer perspective, but also enjoy sports that's me and then a true diehard fan like Sylvie and I think that's your your best show and it's sad that both of those stations those ratings are rock bottom they should again should never be that too many people care and market of nine million people too many people care about sports for the ratings of sports radio to be as low as they are so I'm not trying to you know, but you know, be overly critical of media there. I'm just telling you what I see, and it, I've always felt like the media did not rise to the level of the market size there. Now you have this Gene Greco fiasco. He's gone. Who they're going to replace him with somebody you know ten times cheaper? I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's just Chicago, and sometimes never feels like Mike Royko, Tim Weigel, and these are names you guys probably don't remember, but Chicago used to be the national media town. Lester Holt came out of Chicago. I could go right down the line. Brent Musburger came out of Chicago. That just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, the Gumbles. There's another group of uh, people. The Gumbles. Michael Michael Wilbon, who never actually worked there, but Wilbon. Yeah, I could go on and on. People out of Northwestern. It's just I, I, I expect more out of the media there. That's all. Jay, obviously, so to catch people up on everything uh, that has been going on with you over the past 10 years, so just so we can catch up with everybody, uh, you know, it it was like you were on ESPN, you were, you know, writing for the Sun-Times, you were doing radio shows, and now I feel like the last 10 years you've, you've kind of been hanging out in L.A. I'd love for our listeners to know what Jay Mariotti has been doing, because, I mean, from somebody who is, you know, been um, so out there with doing as much media as you have, and now you're kind of just relaxing maybe a little bit. I'd love to know what Jay Mariotti has been up to, and and when can we expect to maybe see you again doing all the things that you used to be doing? Well, 2008, I just signed another deal with the Sun-Times, but there was a caveat. Guys, if we don't improve our digital presence, we're going to die as a newspaper. So I'll sign this deal. And I'm going to go over to Beijing and cover the Olympics. And hopefully we get kind of get moving on this because we're going to get buried. Uh, nothing. Michael Phelps would break a record. It takes six hours to post it. And me and another Greg Couch were over there like, what are we even doing at this newspaper? They don't care. Why are we even in China? What What is going on? Came back, politely resigned. All hell broke loose. Roger Ebert, you know, rips the hell out of me. I'm like, wait a minute. This is insane. Um, this is my life. 
And if I don't want to work for a paper that has no future because it doesn't understand that digital is going to become king over the next decade, then I don't want to work here. A lot of backlash guys in the industry. It was sort of like I was leaking the secret and what, you know, yeah, there was, you know, it was uh, merciless. I mean, uh, every day on the internet, there's some other lie told about me. And you know, a lot of that was, was discouraging to me because it, it's, I'm just speaking the truth. And, and now what, 10, 11 years later, was I wrong? Of course I was right. Both of those papers in Chicago did not adapt to the digital age. And they're both, you know, in danger of dying in the next few years. So anyway, uh, there was all that. I went to a site, AOL.com. I uh, was working out well. I was doing around the horn. I was involved in a legal case that in, in, since then, you know, we won the civil case and it has never been reported. And it has all, you know, been expunged many years ago. That was never reported. And there's a lot out there that I realized, wow, the media is as evil as maybe a lot of people think it is because in my case they seem to be uh reporting or not reporting on me based on their feelings about me more than the reality and the facts of a legal situation and a lot of that soured me i got i got really especially as people in chicago they took such a a you know guys give me a call or i'll refer you to my lawyer and here's what went down and we'll show you documents no we like seeing Jay in this situation. Well, guys, that's unprofessional and that's uh, pretty crappy. And, you know, there, there were, I just decided you started in this business when you were in college and you were fortunate enough to uh, get a job right out of college in Detroit. And I was fortunate enough to be a columnist. When I was 25 in Cincinnati and I was in Chicago and I'm 31 and you're on ESPN, a big TV show. And always, I think it, I just burned out. I said, enough. This business is insane. And I, I can't, if they're not even going to call me and see what happened in a legal case in the end and how the story was completed, there's, why would I want to like jump back into this racket? In the meantime, over the last decade, you've seen how the business has changed dramatically uh, to the point where there are a lot of reckless websites and people just running what they want. There's not a lot of professionalism. I kind of sat back and watched the wheels go round. And, I, you know, I, I, I don't know when I'm going to get back in. I don't know if they, they want me back in. Because if you look at sites, they, they pretty much if you're not, quote unquote, working favorably for a league or a franchise, they really going to what, what's happening to sports columnists? There aren't that many out there. Paul Sullivan's a nice writer. Paul Sullivan's not a sports columnist. He's I need opinions. I need I need strong stuff. And. I think papers hanging on don't want to hire those kinds of columnists. And I think in general talk shows, uh, they, they, they want guys who are rooting for the teams and not being critical. I think everything has changed in this industry. I don't know if I'll ever get back in it. I don't know if they want me back in it. But what I'm doing now is I write for uh, Jason Barrett, who's a longtime uh, industry uh uh, guy, radio guy, and he's got a pretty popular site. It's an industry site, but it allows me to voice some of the th things I'm voicing with you right here. I'm a media critic once a week, and he runs my columns on sports the rest of the week. So that's fine for me now. I, you know, I had 35 years that felt like 60 of just running around in airports, running around the world, TV shows, radio shows. I, I think I just decided, chill. And if you get back in it and somebody wants you badly enough, do it. If not, you've had a great career. I, I really have uh, uh, no regrets about anything, and uh, life's good. Jay, would you say that do you feel like you've been blackballed and, and you're not getting those opportunities, or do you feel like your mold doesn't fit the market anymore? Uh, both. I think long before there was a court case, there were a lot of people trying to blackball me. Let's let's make that clear. And one of them, you know, owns two teams in Chicago, and uh, just ask around. I mean, it's it's it, that's what disappointed me about the Sun Times. There were feeling a lot of times I thought, Jesus, they are in bed with Jerry. And I I went on the score one day with Molly and uh, Hanley and said so. <laughs> and and, and I, my bosses didn't like it, but they didn't fire me because I think there was some truth to it. They're trying to hang on. They need influence and power and money. Yeah, we like being in bed with Jerry Reinsdorf. So a lot of that was going on in Chicago even back then. 
And I'm trying to battle through it every day and just trying to get good pieces in the paper, wondering if there will be political ramifications. So is there a black ball? Yeah, but it's not about a legal case. It's about it's about we don't want a, a free thinking, opinionated guy coming after ownership. They, he can go after the manager for a bad sixth inning switch, but uh, don't ever touch the owner. And see, guys, you, you look around the country. I mean, even Stephen A., Skip Bayless, these guys aren't you're not seeing them go after Jerry Jones. You're, you're seeing them go after, you know, should this team sign Russell Wilson? Those aren't those aren't cut to the bone kind of conversations. But that's what I do. And that's what I continue to do. I'm not going to change. So great question. I have a feeling some people out there would love to hire me, but maybe way up on high, there would be somebody who hears from an owner and says, don't you dare hire him. So probably not. It's probably over. And once again, our thanks to Jay Mariotti, formerly of the Chicago Sun-Times and ESPN. Really cool to catch up with him. Had some great insight about everything going on with the Cubs and, of course, in the world of Chicago sports and a little bit about his career as well. It was some really interesting stuff that he had to say. You can find Jay at Mariotti Sports, and you can find me on social media. I am at Ryan D. Lever. Chad is at the Chad Gordon, and you can also go to our Facebook page, the Chicago Cubs Friendly Confines Facebook page. We are always looking for people to join the conversation and to chat about Cubs baseball. And don't forget about our new website, theconfines.com, where you can find our podcast. Be sure to check us out there. And uh, Rob, I'd be remiss, uh, you are not on Twitter, but uh, you are on Facebook. Do you accept uh, friend requests from random people if they're listening to this podcast? I, I always do. I, people don't seem to want to wanna accept my friend requests, but I always accept friend requests. Oh, okay. Well, that's good to know. So you can find Rob Bressler on Facebook. Feel free, and uh, he will accept your random friends requests as we begin the eighth inning. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. You know, uh, we only have two innings left, but but they're big ones. Uh, and and for this eighth inning, we're talking about a, a topic which is near and dear to my heart, and that's food and beverages. <laughs> um, and we're talking about the decision that came out. We understand. I think at Wrigley Field this year that fans in the stands and probably from here on out, right, are going to be able to order from their seats, concessions, and have that brought to their seats. So, Rai, this is, this is really big news. We've seen this, in, in obviously, in, with other teams and the, the Bulls and, um, and other areas of sports. But this is new for Wrigley Field. And, and I'm wondering your thoughts on this, in particular for Wrigley Field, when, when you talk about the impact this might have on vendors. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, vendors are such a huge part of the game. You are a former vendor yourself uh, that you worked at Wrigley for quite some time. Um, I I mean, it's interesting because this is going to change the dynamic, especially with the pandemic. People are probably um, wanting the opportunity to order their food and not have to worry about, um, you know, it touching multiple hands. They can just order it, pick it up, or it's delivered to them. I guess the only thing I can think of, Rob, is that you can get your food ordered and then it would be delivered by a quote-unquote vendor who then you would be able to tip. So the only thing I can say is maybe in the traditional sense, this um, might be a different way that the vendors are going to be giving you your food. It might not be the traditional, at least to start, the traditional way of where we've seen these vendors who have worked at Wrigley for upwards of 30 years or more, um, you know, selling whatever it is that they're selling up and down the aisles. And then you just kind of ask for whatever it is you want and they, you know, will will bring it to you. So I, I would like to think that they're going to create a way so that it doesn't um, basically make the vendor, as we know it, obsolete. Uh, well, what about you? Right. I, I don't like it. And I think the idea that, that well, okay, yeah, you order it, but then you got the vendor go deliver it. That's not a vendor, right? All due respect. 
That's a waiter or a waitress. And nothing against waiter or waitresses. But if you were to ask me who some of the greatest salespeople I've ever seen in my entire life are, my answer would be vendors. I, I'm telling you, that's the art of vending. It's not just delivering food or a beer, right? It's selling it. It's being part of the game. It's, it, it's a fabric of the, of the game. And it's a fabric of Wrigley Field. And so I, I don't like it. Look, it's not the first time there's been a bad idea with respect to food delivery service at Wrigley Field. There was one year when I was vending where the Cubs made a decision. Instead of wrapping hot dogs in advance and just giving them to vendors to hand out, they decided to give hot dog vendors a giant metal vat of boiling water with hot dogs in, on one side and then buns in the other. And then so you had these vendors in, in 95 degree days going through the stands, making hot dogs, supposedly using gloves, handling cash. That was a bad idea. I think this is a bad idea, too. Look, I get it. it we're now in the, in the age where people want stuff right away and they're on their apps and they're on their phones. But I, I, I'm worried about what this is going is to do to vendors. Uh, it, it's such an important part of the game. And I'll just say this especially this year, especially moving forward, when, when you get a chance to order, to get food or get a beer from a vendor, you should do that instead of ordering from a darn app. Um, I think there should be a rule that you shouldn't be able to get beer uh, on the app. You should need to get beer from a vendor. Harry Carey's probably rolling around in his grave. If he knows you can order something and have a, a waiter carry it to your seat. And, and the other thing I'll just say is, look, Everyone, I have this conversation all the time with people. You should tip vendors at Wrigley Field and sporting events better than you tip almost anyone. And I think a lot of people tip them actually worse. And, and especially now, the tips should be doubled and tripled. These are, these are people who have been so important to us. It, we grew up with them. We know these vendors. And that's, for a lot of them, that's their, their entire uh, you know, life's work. And so tip your vendors. They have a real skill. Not everyone can do it. They're working hard. And, and I really hope that, that this doesn't harm the profession too much. So just so uh, we're, we're both understanding this, they are going to have vendors in the ballpark. They will not be accepting cash, only credit cards this year, uh, Rob. And then, as you mentioned, um, you can order food and beverages, including beer, on your phone and then you can actually select the uh concession stand you want to pick up your phones or pick up your food so yeah you know i think it's just preference i, I think once things normalize again though rob I, I truly believe that while we still will have this technology i still think there's going to be lots of people who don't want to leave their seat that want to have that baseball experience of not having to stand in line uh, waiting for their food to pick up, and and they'll just order from the vendor. I, I think there's going to be a lot more people that think along your line than uh, than you may think, and I I hope that is the case as well because, like you said, there are so many people that make this their livelihood each and every day when they work at the ballpark. So let us move on now to the ninth inning, Rob, and probably the most important topic we're going to talk about here today. Um, it was announced that Alex Rodriguez uh, and Jennifer Lopez have decided to call it quits, Rob. Um, America's couple has broken up, um, and, you know, they live in South Florida. They're, they live about an hour away from me, Rob. So uh, this is, you know, kind of local for me, kind of local news, if you will. Um, are you shocked? Are you sad? Um, how distraught are you about learning the news that Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez are no longer a couple, Rob. Right. It's it's absolutely shocking. Uh, it's 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 about as shocking as seeing Giancarlo Stanton get hurt every year. Look, uh, this this anyone who thinks this was going to happen, you know, I, I'm not sure where exactly you're living. I mean, uh, this and and Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. I mean, to have these two things happen within such a short period of time is difficult for the nation to handle. I'm aware, but let me just be clear about one thing. Um, I'm absolutely on team JLo and I'm on team JLo for two big reasons. The first is 
I can't stand listening to Alex Rodriguez talk, um, especially when he when he's a guest on Shark Tank. Um, so that's one. Um, and then two, look, nothing against A-Rod, obviously one of the most talented players of all time. But I, I'll have this debate with anyone. Um, look, A-Rod was suspended for PED use. A-Rod didn't need to do it, but he did, right? Here's a guy who had the first, what, $250 million contract, and he did it. And so I just, that the idea that some people actually think A-Rod should be a Hall of Famer, it boggles my mind, right? I'd rather put Barry Bonds in the Hall of Fame, certainly rather put Sammy Sosa in the Hall of Fame than Alex Rodriguez, who, who, who made this choice and it's been proven that he used PEDs. Somehow I got from the breakup of A-Rod and J-Lo to the PED scandal. And I think that's impressive in and of itself, right? Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I hate to say this, but are there two people that it seems like every time they are in a relationship of some sort, it just absolutely crumbles, whether that's J-Lo or A-Rod. So it doesn't shock me that the two of them got together and their relationship failed. I, I mean, I hate to say this, but Jennifer Lopez has been in three failed marriages, now uh, a failed engagement. Uh, Alex Rodriguez, uh, there was talk about, you know, alleged affairs and, uh, you know, he was communicating with reality television stars, apparently. Uh, This just kind of seemed like it was eventually going to fall apart. And uh, sure enough, it did. It's just another, uh, if you want to call it, Hollywood story, Rob, with a very unhappy ending. Look, right. Uh, J-Lo yeah. believes in love, okay? I'm not going to blame her for keeping t- to try to do it. I blame A-Rod for this, okay? Again, I'm on Team J-Lo, and I, and I hope everyone, everyone feels that way as well. Well, I, I'm, I'm sure you will have your J-Lo pom-poms out uh, listening to her music and, and certainly celebrating this to know that she is back on the market, Rob, for sure. Um, all right. Rob, that is going to do it for this edition of the Friendly Confines. Hey, my thanks to Rob Bressler, who pinch hit and did such a terrific job. Thank you, Rob, for joining me on this episode. I really appreciate it. You were fantastic. So for Rob, I am Ryan. We will talk to you next time, everybody. Have a good one, and we'll see you at the ballpark. just a game for I've seen other teams and it's never the same when you're born in Chicago you're blessed and you're a field the first time you walk into Wrigley